Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm Brett Chisholm. On this episode, we talk about the amazing but sometimes fatal sport of wingsuit base jumping. We chat about how we're not watching the Tiger King like everyone else. And then Brett gushes about the book Blink and the afro that inspired it. Movies, shows, and video games. Podcast books and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. So have you been watching anything on YouTube lately? Uh, you know, not on YouTube, but something that I I did watch recently was a uh, base on Amazon. It's a, okay. uh, I mean, it's a base jumping feature film, but it's filmed in the style of like a YouTube video. So, you know, you might may call it found footage, but it's not really like a found footage movie. It's more of like a movie that's filmed from helmet cams, a lot like wingsuit base jumping, you know, they kind of documenting their trips around the world and all their crazy flying adventures. And the whole movie is filmed that way. Have you seen, have you seen base or heard of it? I haven't seen base now. So it, it stars Alexander Poli, who was this really famous base jumper. He was kind of like the, the playboy of base jumping. You know, he was like this, this rich, uh, like trust fund kid. And he became one of the most well-known base jumpers in the world. He flew through this, 20 meter cave they call it the batman cave is like this crazy stunt where he got out of a helicopter and flew across all of this just no outs terrain and then shot through this hole and you know he's one of the first guys to to fly through a through a uh, a cave like that and so that kind of like uh jettisoned him to prominence in the base world and then he did all kind of crazy uh base jumping stunts and flights and so it's it stars him, and he's playing this character JT. But really, I mean, so, so I met Alexander Poli in 2012 at a uh, a head down skydiving world record tryout, and he was this awesome guy. But when you watch the movie, you can tell that he's kind of like playing a thinly veiled version of himself. His character in the movie is like a little bit more of an asshole than he was. Like he was a super nice guy. But he's playing this character in the movie that's kind of like a jerk that's always pushing people around him to do these crazy jumps that they're not comfortable with. So there's this scene in this movie, and if you've watched much wingsuit base jumping video, you know what it looks like. You know, it's flying down like crook of the earth, just super tight on the terrain. And almost some of it almost looks like footage that's mounted on the bottom of a mountain bike because these guys are flying so low. And it's just some of the most incredible footage that's ever been put to film. But there's a scene in this movie, and I mean, it is it is very well done and is very disturbing, especially for anyone with a skydiving or you know base jumping background. There's a scene where he pushes this other character, Max, to go and do a wingsuit jump that he's uncomfortable with, and the uh, the video is from a rear mounted helmet cam, so uh, you can see Polly's back. You can see his wingsuit inflated like his arms. And as they jump off, you see Max exit behind him. And the entire flight, Max is kind of like chicaning around terrain to stay with him. And there's there's one part where, where Pulley goes around this outcropping and then cuts back in and flies down this crack in the earth. And the Max character kind of 
wobbles back and forth and then disappears behind the outcropping and there's this puff of dust where he just impacts. It is, I mean, from knowing wingsuit flyers that have gone in, it's such a disturbing scene. It's so well done. And it really makes me wonder like how they got this incredible footage. It, it must have been like two plates shot together and composited, but they just did such a great job on it, you know. And at first, I was not really sold on this movie, but seeing that, I was like, man, this these guys really knew what they were doing, and they they knew kind of how fatalistic that sport is, and really knew how to how to portray it on film. I feel like base jumping, and in particular, proximity flying wingsuit base, is one of those things that just. It, kind of blew up YouTube. I mean, just the whole market for action sports cameras and GoPro. I, I would be curious to know how many skydivers were inspired to start skydiving just so they could get into wingsuit base just because of the videos that they saw on YouTube because it's just such a spectacle. Yeah, it's some of the most incredible footage ever. And, you know, I I've flown a few wingsuit, I've got maybe 50 wingsuit jumps in the sky and a handful of base jumps under my belt, never combined the two. But I still, I find even to this day, knowing what the consequences of it are, I still can't stop watching wingsuit base jumping videos. It's just, it's always so stimulating. It's something that like if it comes up in my, you know, social media feed, I'll always stop and watch it. And then, I'm subscribed to, you know, a few different pages on YouTube and Facebook. Just all they do is provide proxy fly video. So it's something that is just, it's just part of my media consumption because it's always exhilarating. Definitely the ultimate action sport. That's for sure. Yeah. And it looks, it just looks so unreal. Also seeing someone fly, like when you see it from the outside perspective, someone on the ground and a wingsuit flies by them, it, is, it does not look like it's adhering to the laws of physics. You know, it, you're just so used to the idea of someone falling. Even as a skydiver, you're used to falling relatively straight down. It's so hard to wrap your mind around, you know, these, these people are riding the air. Even having been up there and done it myself, it's so hard to reconcile with the visual you're getting and what your mind tells you should be happening. Some of the... Uh, the technology that's been developed. I mean, I were, I remember when I started getting into skydiving and getting into base jumping, and I also never combined uh, wingsuits with base jumping, but the, just the advancement in wingsuit design and how much lift these guys are getting. I mean, how much forward movement for, uh, you know, their vertical drop. It's just insane. I was just watching uh, Graham Dickinson, some of his, wingsuit footage and oh man that is wild stuff yeah he was a total legend but he kind of had the same story arc as every popular wingsuit flyer with the exception of maybe three or four that are still operating today at the top of the game almost every single one of these guys has gone and doing this sport you know like alexander poli he was a total legend but you know the uh kind of the nature of wingsuit flying and action sports in general is you're always trying to push the envelope. And when you're flying six inches to a foot off the ground, the envelope is very small that you're operating in. And inherently like it may not, may not always be piloting air. It may be 
some conditional issue, but something always seems to reach out and get these guys. Like Poli, his his incident was he was attempting a a uh, a barrel rolling dive, so like a uh, like a corkscrew or like a hook turn, and it's something that you see a lot on wingsuit videos now today. But he was kind of like right on the cutting edge of learning that maneuver, and ended up you know paying for his life with it. And it's a it's a total tragedy, but it's how these action sports are pushed forward. You know, it's almost always on the backs of the people that came before you. And a lot of them are like, you know, paying with their bodies to progress these sports. Yeah, actually I, uh, somebody that I knew, I I wouldn't call him a friend. I I lost touch with him, but we did have kind of a relationship in the sport. We learned to base jump together and he was on a pretty high profile accident several years later with three wingsuiters. It wasn't technically a base jump because they were jumping from a helicopter. It was in Switzerland, but a a very similar situation that you're talking about. I mean, these were three wingsuit skydivers, base jumpers, top of their game, very, very skilled, um, you know, and knew how to manage the risks. I mean, the, you know, they weren't reckless. And I think that's kind of like a, uh, a, an uh, inaccurate perception of a lot of these athletes is that these guys are reckless. They are not reckless. I mean, they fly these lines over and over and over. Um, and this is after they've accumulated years of experience first with wingsuit skydiving before they, they combine the two because you're adding just so many variables, you know, a base jump is already just extremely dangerous given the, the, low proximity, the fact that you have one parachute because you really don't have time to, you know, deal with any kind of parachute malfunction and open a reserve. Um, but with wingsuiting too, I I remember my first wingsuit jump and, you know, I, I had a lot of coaching, had a lot of like really experienced mentors at that time since I was working at the wind tunnel. And so I was just like surrounded by expertise and, um, and I had good body control and free fall. I mean, that was kind of like my, my one forte in the sport of skydiving. It was my free flying, my tracking. It definitely wasn't your canopy flying. (laughs) I wouldn't say it was my canopy flying. No, I, I, uh, just didn't have nearly as much skydiving experience as a lot of my peers that I was jumping with, but, um, I still ended up doing a, uh, wingsuit skydive out of a hot air balloon actually. And ended up with just tons of line twists, just like my friend, w- you know, warned what, me I was going to have. What's a line though, twist, Brett, for anyone who has not skydived? What's that? What's a line twist for anyone who has not skydived? Um, basically, your canopy is um, open above you, and then between you and your risers, it's it's like if you were to sit in a uh, swing when you were a kid on the playground and just rotate your body 180 degrees, 360 degrees, maybe a couple more turns. I must've had like two or three full line twists, which I was jumping a very docile canopy and, you know, I wasn't opening low like you see in these wingsuit base videos, but you know, I, I really had only had line twists maybe like one or two other times and not to this degree, but it just kind of comes with inexperienced, wingsuit skydiving it's your your body position when you 
open your parachute is very, very important with kind of how things progress as your parachute is opening. And when you have that much drag attached to your body, I mean, you have, you know, basically wings, wings, uh, you have a large surface between your legs and then two more large surfaces, one between your right arm and your body and one between your left arm and your body. And if you don't collapse those perfectly symmetrical and you kind of have this process of collapsing everything to throw your pilot chute out and you kind of collapse, open up and collapse and, and, uh, you know, it, it definitely takes some practice to get everything right. So you see these guys though. And I think a lot, the perception is that it's kind of this like radical attitude. Most, most of these guys, it's very, uh, methodical and it's been a slow progression to get to the point where they're, you know, flying these lines in Switzerland or these lines in Italy where they're, you know, literally below the tops of the trees. So what happened with your with your buddy that you started base jumping with? Yeah, so he was um uh we had just to give you a little backstory on on uh this amazing guy. His name was Brian Drake. We met at a first jump course at Twin Falls, Idaho, the Prine Bridge. That's kind of where everybody first learns uh how to base jump. You can it's legal there. You can control a lot of the variables. You're jumping over water. It's 500 feet high. So you, it's, you know, not too low, not too high. Um, there's a lot of expertise there too. So people kind of can watch out for each other, but this was, uh, just a really good first jump course with Jimmy and Marta apex base. Um, so after that first jump course, we ended up keeping in touch. He reached out to me to split some coaching from another base jumping instructor, uh, Tom Aelo. So Brian and I went out there and, you know, I think we did like a week long course. We were doing five or six base jumps a day. He ended up breaking his leg on that trip, which was, you know, pretty wild to see anyway. Um, but after that, I, I had kind of, uh, years after that kind of gotten away from base, ended up essentially quitting. And then, uh, he had continued to progress and become one of these, one of these guys that you see on YouTube. That's like you know, top of his game. And it was him, Dan Vickery, and uh, I'm not sure how to say this name, Ludovic Worth. Yeah, Ludo Worth. This is a Ludo really, Worth. really famous incident, unfortunately. Yeah, so they were jumping in Switzerland. This was in 2014. And they had flown this line over and over and over. And one of their friends who is also a wingsuit base jumper and and basically an expert at this particular sport was trusted with reviewing the footage and kind of trying to figure out what had gone wrong. And I mean, he says, you know, people make mistakes. These were, these were great men and, and great jumpers that made a mistake. Um, and they were essentially, they, they had this ridge line that they, they had practiced over and over. And I'm not sure exactly why they got off that line, but they ended up flying around this ridge and they ended up over flat terrain. And they realized they were trying to, you know, they, they realized they were running out of room and they tried to take a left turn to get into some steeper terrain so that they could open safely, but they just couldn't outfly the terrain. I, I think it was something like three meters too low. Uh, Brian actually lived for a couple days afterwards, but the other two 
passed away on impact, but I mean, it was a huge, you know, high profile thing. Cause there's, there's a lot of fatalities in the sport of both base jumping and of course, wingsuit base, but to have three, three of the experts all go in, in one, um, incident is just, uh, it's just horrendous. Yeah. That was a real eye opening incident for the skydiving and base jumping community. I remember when it happened and, you know, it was, it's unfortunately become more commonplace as the years have progressed. And it was, a, there was a certain point where base jumping almost had like a base jumping death season associated with it. And, you know, it was basically summer in France when everyone was jumping in uh, Chamonix or Mont Blanc, Mont Blanc and uh, there were always high-profile incidents, you know, in the following years until eventually, I believe Chamonix shut down base jumping for a while. It may still be shut down there. But something I've noticed with base jumping just from watching uh, video is I've almost seen, like, a drop-off in the aggression level. Like, for a while, there was definitely something to prove in the way that people were flying because that's the way these action sports always seem to progress, you know. In skydiving, I, I would say the equivalent to what happened with wingsuit proxy flying was swooping, which is where you dive high-performance canopy at the ground, plane out, you know, going 90 miles an hour and either, like, drag water or do some sort of free fly, or freestyle trick or go for a distance or speed run. And, you know, this is, this is probably the most uh, spectator-friendly part of skydiving because it happens at the ground, but it's also the most dangerous part because it happens at the ground. And that's been pushed to its absolute extremes. And there was a time in skydiving where femuring was a verb because there were so many swooping incidents with people flying their perfectly functioning parachutes into the ground and breaking their legs or killing themselves. And so, you know, for a long time, most of the skydiving injuries and deaths were associated with swooping. And now that sport has kind of evolved with, you know, people paving the way with blood and also the skills of the people that survived progressing to the point where safety becomes, you know, the absolute paramount. And then those people coaching the next generation until now, you know, it's almost like, it's like a faux pas to hook in now, you know, it, you just don't, you just don't rush that sport anymore. And I've kind of seen, at least from my outside perspective, it seems like that same kind of approach has been taken with proxy flying. You know, people are still flying these intense lines, but you don't see the same kind of footage now that you were seeing during, uh, you know, Brian Drake's era. It's people are flying s slightly more conservative lines and maybe taking their time to get to that point. And it doesn't make the footage any less phenomenal because just the fact of seeing someone fly even five feet off the ground is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Do you think YouTube has had uh, a positive impact or a negative impact on an action sport like this? Because I, I, you know, I feel like it's such a gift that we can bring this incredible activity into our living rooms, essentially, and just kind of um, just being just be amazed at just the spectacle of this. But on the flip side of that, like I was saying before, I feel like it must have inspired a lot of people to, you know, it's kind of like 
Instagrammers going for the likes, right? I mean, you're, you're wanting to catch it on film as opposed to really having your head in the game and, and really, uh, focusing on, on managing risk properly. I mean, what do you think about that? Oh man, it's so hard to say because I am not one to blame the tools and, you know, YouTube is a tool and same thing with GoPro. There's heard the same argue with Go argument with GoPro, you know, people asking if the very fact that the GoPro exists or that it's there is encouraging people to do things they wouldn't normally do. And I think that, you know, it might play a little part of it, but honestly, I feel like people that are driven to do these kind of things, they're probably going to make the same decisions regardless of whether someone is watching. And I think it's more of the environment that these people grow up in as far as extreme sports goes. You know, if you are raised in an era of extreme sports where GoPros and YouTube exist, but like with swooping, safety is the ultimate paramount, then I think you'll eventually end up being a safer skydiver and swooper just because that's the culture that you're growing up in. And, you know, I think if you look at just the the people that are still surviving in wingsuit proxy fly base jumping these days, some of these guys have been around since the beginning. And most of them are the guys that try to eliminate chances as much as possible. You know, they grew up through the same era. And I imagine these guys might have been the ones that were really pushing the safety doctrine the entire time. And some of these younger guys that come up in a more dangerous era, you know, they may have been raised just from the beginning in that dangerous era and didn't live long enough to to see the doctrine become about safety. You know, they kind of pay the price for that environment. But I think, I, I do think that it's changing now because I don't hear about as many fatalities. And I have a lot of friends in base jumping. I I, I think there is like a like a paradigm shift happening. Oh, that's a that's a good thing. You know, bases. It's definitely one of those activities that has um, a pretty uh, tight knit culture and community around it, and it's it's not exactly easy to get into. I mean, it's it's very easy to go out and buy a motorcycle, and motorcycles are just I mean, they're extraordinarily dangerous. I mean, statistically speaking, it you're probably in a lot more danger riding a motorcycle on the road with a bunch of other cars around you than you are skydiving. It all I mean, happens almost, on the ground. That's the dangerous right. part of skydiving and base jumping is the ground. Right. Absolutely. But with base, you know, you're, you really have to come to terms with the consequences of your actions. And I, I remember Tom Aelo, I mean, his, his coaching was really, I mean, it was less about just learning how to jump the prime bridge safely. And it, he really taught people how to approach different objects, how to, um, come to terms with what could happen in terms of injury and death. One of the things that he makes all his students do is sit down in his basement and write a letter to your loved ones that Tom holds on to in case something happens to you in the sport. And then he takes it upon himself to deliver those letters to your loved ones. And I mean, it's kind of like a mental exercise. He wants his students to know how serious the sporter activity is if, if there was any kind of, uh, you know, doubt about what you're getting into. And now that I look back on that, 
process, it it just kind of like gives me goosebumps to think I sat in Tom's basement with Brian and we, you know, we wrote our letters at the same time. And I'm I'm sure that Tom uh, had to deliver that that letter. So I'd imagine when you're young and in a sport that essentially makes you feel like a superhero, you you probably don't take writing that letter seriously. You know, it probably just seems like such a, a fantasy that that would ever have to be delivered. You know, it's not going to happen to you. I don't know, man. I definitely take it pretty seriously, but I, I can only speak for myself. Yeah, that's true. Well, in a uh, in a lighter note, have you added anything to your content circuit? I do have one thing right now. Uh, as a potential... Uh, a potential research project for a future episode. I am rereading Starship Troopers, the Robert Heinlein novel. Novel. Oh, it's so good. I know. Uh, potentially in the future, I might want to do a comparison between the movie and the book because they're both so good in their own right. And you know, the movie kind of at one point it seemed like it was total camp, but I think as it's aged, people have kind of come to see it as being a masterpiece of camp, like intentionally campy. And the book is nothing like that. So I think it'd be interesting to do a comparison of the two someday. Oh, I can't wait for that. That's definitely one of my top sci-fi reads for sure. That's about it for me right now. What about you? You Got anything new? Well, there's something I'm not watching that everybody seems to be talking about right now. Have you heard about the Tiger King documentary on netflix yeah i've seen a couple episodes just in passing because my wife was watching it but it just seemed so it like in the news that i was like yeah i need to wait till the hype dies down on this before i sit down and watch it i i don't think i've ever been approached so many times by my friends about something that i need to watch um you know, I, I know a little bit about the Joe Exotic case just from some podcasts uh, I listened to that kind of touched That's on it, it a little bit. Yeah, so I, you know, I'm a, I'm somewhat familiar with it, but I just with everything going on in the world right now, I, I'm just not I'm just not ready for uh, what I hear is a a pretty dark and uh, intense, just bizarre situation. The one, the one scene that I watched, uh, it was them talking about the new or the film crew that was filming the Joe Exotic TV show for Discovery or whatever history, and uh, they were talking about like some behind the scenes stuff about how when the film crew was around, Joe Exotic would just go off like on a firing tirade just for the cameras, and so the the ex employees were talking to the documentarians about how. If, if they were filming in the in the manager meeting in the morning, they're like, oh, we may not be here this afternoon because Joe might fire us just because it looks good for the cameras. Oh, my gosh. I just uh, saw a headline recently where he has filed a $94 million lawsuit from prison. Oh, yeah. He's going to win that. <laughs> Pretty wild. So after we recorded our last episode where you um, talked about uh, – avatar and the amazing font associated with it. Um, 
I had to go and watch it again. And I mean, it's one of my wife's favorite movies. It's one of my favorite movies. And I really watched, or I wish I watched it before we recorded the episode because it's just, it's just worth exploring again and again. It, it is a great film. It sounds like the show is working. I think so. It's working on me at least. You're kind of a captive audience. That's true. The, uh, you know, something I noticed actually, um, with that, uh, how do you say that font? Papyrus? Papyrus? Papyrus. Papyrus. So that's the title screen font. And it's also the font for some of the Navi, um, you know, the, the translation at the bottom of the screen, the captions. Yeah. The subtitles. That's the, that's the the whole thing. Thanks. That's what I was trying to trying to remember but i noticed the kind of right before the end credits at the end of the movie have you did you notice that they have a different font for that they show avatar again and it's not in papyrus no what's it in i have no idea but it look i mean it just there's a lot less material dishonesty oh yeah so maybe maybe there is something to that uh theory that you were um reading about on that blog post I mean, they definitely tweaked the font. You know, it's not it's not straight papyrus. You can tell that they tweaked some of the, the font features and maybe removed some of the nooks and crannies, but it's close enough that, you know, you can, you can tell that's definitely what it was based on. So I wonder if that was, you know, if it was a whole separate font at the end or just a, a closer look at it because it's it's definitely like a custom version of papyrus. Interesting. Yeah, man, it's, you know, once again, even though there's that, uh, that pretty clear delineation between kind of the good guys and the bad guys, and there's a little bit of gray area explored with, you know, some of the scientists and with Jake Sully, um, I still find myself just always like kind of laughing and I wouldn't say rooting for the villains, but I just really enjoy any time you see the CEO of RDA on the screen. He's just, I, he's just such a hilarious character. He's, he's so slimy too. Oh man, this is so well executed. Just golfing. Hey, did you see that? Yeah, I did boss. No, you didn't. You're watching the monitor. Just so many, so many good lines. That's like the world building. You know, it's like everything seems so real and lived in in that movie. It really seems like that's that installation has been there for like decades, you know, and they're just they're just so bored of living on this alien planet. It's you know, that's the that's the kind of stuff that I imagine there's probably a, you know, three hundred page backstory bible of all of these characters' experiences before the movie script even starts. Yeah, you you know, we had a quick conversation too about the atmosphere of Pandora. Cause it's clear that it's not breathable for humans, but you, you made a comment about the matches when he's trying to like light them up and he's got something burning. But I did end up Googling it as I was watching, uh, watching avatar again. And they, of course there's like a whole backstory to, uh, the moon of Pandora and that you can read all about the different gases in there so i guess it is a it's like a carbon dioxide heavy uh atmosphere there is oxygen in it but there's xenon like you know they they really did a lot of exploration in that world building that you're talking about to um kind of create the the realism 
So if you know, for people that really want to geek out on a great movie, there there's just so much you could uh, deep dive into, and kind of the like science fiction part of that film. Yeah, Avatar is so great. We had to do another ten minutes of it in our off top <laughs> today. And when space exploration ramps up, they're going to look to the sci-fi authors to show them how it's done. Absolutely. Well, uh, you want to take a quick break and then come back, get in some content? Ooh, content. The Content Clearinghouse is brought to you by Best Maps Ever. They make checklist posters for outdoor adventurers who want to see it all. If you want to visit every national park in the United States, climb every 14er in Colorado, or ski every slope in New England, Best Maps Ever posters are the perfect way to track and inspire your quest. Every single map is lovingly designed with icons marking each location so that you can stick a pin in the icon or color it in with a marker as you check off the areas that you've traveled to. So they offer mounting and framing services for maps that are ready for pinning right out of the box. Or if you prefer to mount the map yourself, there are tips on the website to help you do that. They have a slew of maps relating to protected areas and public lands like state parks, national forests, and even more obscure maps like the National Wild and Scenic Rivers system. So Josh, one of the maps that my wife and I have mounted in our camper is the National Park map. It's covered in pins because, well, you know, my wife and I, we uh, get around. And Best Maps Ever makes our gallivanting around the country even more fun because we can put a pin in the map to prove that we've been there, done that. No one could ever cheat that system, Brett. Well, it is on the honor system. Best Maps Ever does not employ any sort of pin-related security system that will come to your house and check and see if you've actually visited the places you've pinned. <gasps> Since you brought it up, I have uh, the skydiving drop zone map hanging up in my office. It's one of the few decorations I have that's not celebrating one of my many athletic achievements. In fact, it's hanging up on the wall right next to my world's most humble man trophy. For all your cartographic needs, visit bestmapsever.com. They've got the best maps ever. Clear it out. Welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. Brett, what do you have for us today? Well, I have one of my favorite books. Uh, so before we get into it, I want to kind of paint you a little bit of a picture and, and see what you think about this. All In right, audio so format. Yeah, paint a paint a little audio picture. So maybe close your eyes. Imagine, if you're driving, <laughs> keep your eyes open. So imagine you're uh, you're in charge of this museum, right? The J. Paul Getty Museum in L.A. And it's your job to acquire new art. And you hear about this exceptional statue, very very rare. It's a old Greek statue called a cross. Now, this thing, there's not many of them that are in this good of condition. In fact, if this is real, it's one of 12, I believe, that's a complete cross. Uh, now, you want to make sure this thing's legit, right? So you do a scientific analysis. You're looking at the patina, the aging of the marble. You do scans on it. You do core measurements because this thing's not cheap you're going to be spending 10 million bucks and this is back in 85 so that's 24 million dollars today so it's your job to get this thing right 14 months later you decide to buy this thing only to have your homies 
couple of art experts come in, take one look at it, and tell you that that thing is fake. What do you think that, about that? That thing is some bullshit. That thing is some bullshit. That would suck, right? Yeah, that's pretty rough. I'd say you are not doing your job properly. <laughs> so <clears throat> this is this book uh, is that this is how it starts, and this is all about an exploration of the, the gut feelings that we have. So this is this book is called Blink. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, Malcolm Gladwell. Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, so before we get into a little bit more about one of my favorite books, Blink, um, I, I kind of want to touch on the inspiration for Malcolm Gladwell to write this book. At one point in his life, he decided to let his hair grow out. So after he started growing his hair into this wonderful untamed afro that he's so famous for, he realized he was starting to get pulled out of lines at airport security and getting speeding tickets. And the pinnacle of this new unwanted attention that he was getting uh, came when he was walking down 14th Street in Manhattan one day, and he was jumped by three policemen. So after 20 minutes of interrogation, they decided that he was not the rapist that they were looking for. And apparently he looked nothing like the person that they were after, except for his hair. Do you, oh, have you man. seen a picture of uh, Malcolm Gladwell? Yeah, of course. His hair is amazing. Yeah, he's got like so, uh, <laughs> like black Einstein hair. Yes. Yeah, so this, you know, the the cops were looking for somebody with a different build, different height, different age, and you know, the the kind of the one characteristic that was somewhat similar was his hair. So th- this misunderstanding led Gladwell down the path of arguing that first impressions are incredibly powerful and can be a, a source of valuable information, um, but also incorrect information. So this book was published in 2005, and it's an exploration on how our unconscious mind deciphers tons of data all the time and guides us to make mostly very good decisions. It's very accurate a lot of the time, even when we're unaware of it. Although sometimes it does lead us astray, like the example with um, the cops nabbing him and thinking he was the suspect they were looking for. So um, a little bit about Malcolm Gladwell, since he's one of my absolute favorite authors, and I just have to, I just have to pay, give him some accolades here. So he's written six books. Blink is his second book, and his, he's so successful. His first five books are on the New York Times bestsellers list. Um, I have listened to his most recent audiobook, which it, I'm sure is going to end up being a uh, bestseller. And it was actually kind of his first book that was specifically designed for an audiobook format. But he's a Canadian journalist, author, and speaker. He writes for The New Yorker. Um, he, his subjects focus on sociology, psychology, and social psych. So that's kind of his focus, if that's, if that's uh, something that you're interested in. His mom is Jamaican, and she's a psychotherapist. And his dad is from England, and he's a math professor. So you have like two really interesting perspectives right off the bat of people that are obviously interested in education and, and um, 
are probably very learned. So he moved from England to Ontario as a kid. He um, ended up in New York. He started at the Washington Post for about 10 years and then uh, moved to the New Yorker in 96. So his goal, and I love this, quote, he wants to mine current academic research for insights, theories, direction, or inspiration. This is my kind of guy. Uh, recently in an interview, he said about his writing process that uh, I have two parallel things I'm interested in. One is I'm interested in collecting interesting stories, and the other is I'm interested in collecting interesting research. What I'm looking for is cases where they overlap. So if I had to sum this up, it's science meets storytelling. I mean, he is just a master wordsmith, and he somehow implants these huge concepts into your brain without you even really noticing. I mean, it's super engaging, tons of anecdotes, tons of fascinating stories, and you some you just get to the end of a chapter, or you get to the end of a book, and you realize that he's put these huge concepts and just kind of like implanted them inside of you. Inception the book. Inception the book. Now is that <laughs> story that story about the uh, the Kuros? Yeah, is that the piece? Is that a oh. that's a story from the book? Yeah, that's that's um, kind of how things kick off. So some of the things about the Kuros that the these art historians or these experts on Greek art they took one look at this this statue that the Getty Museum had been investigating in depth for over a year. And they just, they said things like, it just seems wrong. I I looked at it and I had a bad feeling. They couldn't really explain what it was that they were noticing that just gave them the impression that this thing was not legit. Uh, Another person said, you know, they, they had this sheet over it and they said, we want to show you something. And they whipped this sheet off and they were kind of looking at her and smiling. And what do you think? And she just literally said, oh my God, it's fake. What are you guys doing? And they're like, no, 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 it's real. We spent a year testing it, right? It's still in the museum and it has a plaque with the date, but then underneath it, it says, it also this thing might be is some fake. bullshit. Oh, wait, <laughs> right? what does it say? <laughs> it, it might be some bullshit. Exactly. So <laughs> wait, what does the plaque actually say? Uh, I'd have to find it in my notes here. Hold on. Let's see. So the uh, label reads Greek, about 530 BC or modern forgery. So they kept it up in the in the museum. They spent 10 million bucks on it, buddy. Oh, yeah. You're not going to let that go. What are they going to do with that thing? You know what this, you know this kind of reminds me of? It's not exactly the same thing because the forgery was discovered for a different reason. But do you know about the Hitler Diaries? Have you ever heard of this? By uh, No, I haven't. So... The Hitler Diaries were these these Nazi memorabilia forgeries that were created by this guy Konrad Kujau, this uh, this German, and he was he was essentially a forger. But what he did was he sold these Hitler Diaries that were they were verified and inspected by Hitler experts, and uh, they were confirmed to be you know from Hitler's own collection in his handwriting, and. You know, he he made something like, or they were sold for something like six hundred and eighty thousand 
Deutschmarks, you know, so these are like really expensive, uh, really expensive diaries that were sold to collectors. But the reason that they were verified is that he, for years he had been seeding the Nazi memorabilia market with his own forgeries. So when the, uh, when the uh, experts came in to confirm that they were real, they were comparing them against other Conrad Kujau forgeries. So they, you know, their, uh, their baseline was his version of Hitler's handwriting. And it's not exactly the same thing, but I think it's like, it's such a, an interesting world of art and memorabilia forgery. Man, the stakes are high. Yeah. And that's, can you imagine pulling off that scam where you oh, see you seed the environment with the products that they're going to use to verify that your forgeries are real? That is that's, wild. That's a, that's a dope move right there. <laughs> Anyways, back to the story. Yeah, so um, one of the concepts that he introduces early on in uh, Blink is this idea called thin slicing. So this is basically taking minute details about someone or something and using that thin slice of information to develop a larger opinion. So one of my favorite things about this book, which really got me interested in psychology, it's the reason that I minored in psychology in college, and it kind of jump-started an interest in how the mind works. Um, but it's this, it's this just amazing story of Professor John Gottman. Um, he's from the University of Washington, and he has done a lot of work on relationships and the long-term success of relationships and if that can be predicted. So the idea was he has this love lab where couples would come in, they would chat about whatever they like, they were recorded, and then John Gottman and his team would very carefully review the footage, kind of their tone, their facial expressions, if they were like moving around a lot in their seat, pretty much what they were talking about didn't really matter. The content of the conversation was pretty much negligible, but they're really just trying to infer the sort of unconscious messages, the reactions, the gestures that we are sending when we're communicating. So I, I think I, he probably ended up being so good at this that he must have surprised himself. So they did this long-term study where they tracked these couples over a long period of time, and he found out that he could determine within a 90% or more accuracy rate of whether a marriage will endure. But what's even more wild about that is they could start predicting by observing these couples for 15 minutes or less. So imagine imagine going into this love lab, you know, you you think your relationship is this kind of complex, you know, iceberg kind of situation where it's it's all under the water, no one can figure it out, but here's this guy that can just watch you talk to your husband, to your wife, or actually to your just your significant other and just figure out within 15 minutes, just looking at the tip of the iceberg, whether or not this relationship is going to work out or not. That is insane. Can you imagine going on a first date with that guy? I can't. I mean, he talks about in the book, John Gottman would be sitting 
in a cafe or in a restaurant. And he just got so good at this because this is a skill, Malcolm Gladwell argues in Blink, that we can actually get better at trusting our gut and tuning this this kind of um, intuition that we have. And we can develop it to be better. And this, this John Gottman, this professor would be sitting in a restaurant and he'd overhear a couple of uh, people talking and, you know, he could just say, oh, you know, that's uh, criticism, that's contempt, that's defensiveness, that's, you know, it's not going to work out just like that. Does Malcolm Gladwell go into thin slicing, like how to learn to harness that kind of skill? There is um, a little bit of discussion on that. So um, have you seen Lie to Me? Oh, yeah. It's a fantastic show. I've actually got it on my list of something to maybe cover one day. It's a great show. So what's interesting about that is I did not know this when I first uh, watched Lie to Me, but Blink um, actually made me realize that Lie to Me is based off of a real person and a few scientists' real work with what's called the facial action coding system uh, Paul Ekman is the character that kind of inspired the the uh, main lead in Light of Me. Cal Lightman. Cal Lightman, thanks. Yeah, he almost has that. a superpower in that show. I mean, it's obviously you know it's it's written and all scripted out, so they can make it as super as as possible. But you know, he can he is like a human lie detector, and it almost seems to him it's. You know, it's a great power, but it's also a curse because he can't help but see deception everywhere. Right. Well, so they actually have developed a system where they were planning on using this software to help train people in the TSA or people that are responsible for, um, you know, profiling essentially and to try to instead of just doing like random security checks at airports to be looking for micro expressions or kind of like um, behavior that doesn't really, that just kind of sticks out as abnormal. And so there's actually some training programs that they've developed that can help us identify very rapidly if somebody is potentially lying or not. I've heard that the Israeli version of TSA has like a much more focused approach to screening and you know it's not it's not as uh intrusive to the group you know it seems like they're trained more in this manner from what i've heard yeah i think that's true so another example of thin slicing is um this really interesting gamblers experiment where it's a very simple game that the um, people that are taking the experiment are involved in. Uh, So these are professional gamblers that they kind of posed this scenario to. They have four decks of cards, two red, two blue, and the game is to draw one card at a time. You can win some money, you can lose some money. Now what they don't know, that's kind of the, the parameters of this experiment, is that the cards are stacked. Right, so the red are there's some big winners and there's some big losers, but there's a little bit more big losers. And the blue cards, there's a steady series of modest payoffs and not as many losers. 
So basically, if you take more red cards overall, you're going to be a loser. If you take more blue cards overall, you're going to be a winner. So these gamblers, they're all hooked up to these different machines. They're measuring like their skin conductivity. It's kind of like a lie detector test. So they start to figure out at about 50 cards in that there's just something wrong with red, right? They, they kind of perceive that after 70 cards, they can consciously say, okay, red is definitely the loser. But these scientists that are measuring their uh, skin conductance and their behavior, they see a shift in these professional gamblers from red to blue after only 10 cards. So long before the gamblers that are that are playing this that playing this gambler game they, they don't even realize that they're changing their behavior yet so are they subconsciously tapping into this kind of blink power exactly so that i mean that is the thesis of this book is that we kind of have two brains that are happening here so we have kind of our conscious awareness where we kind of know that we're being mindful about a task. We are making kind of a conscious decision about something. But he says we also have this this brain that's beneath the surface that's doing all of this processing and trying to guide our behavior that we're not even aware of. That's really interesting. Yeah, I know. just being a human for 40 years, you start to realize how much of who you are and what you do is guided by your subconscious. It's, it's crazy to think about that subconscious being programmed by the activities that, you're, that you participate in or just your habits that you feel like are just you know, something maybe you're choosing to do, but in the end, you know, you're, just like a, you're just like a product of this human coding. Right, exactly. And you know, even, even if we're not necessarily like the art experts that knew something was wrong with the Getty Kuros, we, there's still a lot of things that our intuition can tell us that's just something's not quite right about a situation. And we have to learn what Gladwell says. We have to learn that we can trust that intuition, even if we can't necessarily articulate why we're thinking that way. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And what I would wonder from a book like this is, do you feel like, does this give you tools to harness this kind of thing or change the way you look at the world? Or is it more just like a collection of interesting concepts? I mean, I think it's a bit of, of both personally. One of the reasons that I really um, gravitate towards this book is these little chunks of information uh, like in the John Gottman experiment, that, for example, you know, he, he took all this data and he could make all these accurate predictions, but, you know, what can we do with that? One of the things that John Gottman talks about is um, for couples that do stay together, there is a five-to-one ratio of positive to negative interactions. I mean, that is a very usable chunk of information, where you can bring some mindfulness to if you're, you know, having a difficult conversation or just if you can bring some awareness into your daily conversation with your significant other. If you're if you have a lot of negative interactions and not a lot of positive, 
that might be something that you want to work on or something that you need to address. I mean, that to me is a very actionable piece of information. Or another thing that in the chapter about um, John Gottman's Love Lab experiments, uh, he kind of describes these four horsemen of the apocalypse is what he calls them. So one of them is criticism, one of them is contempt, one of them is defensiveness, and the fourth is stonewalling. I thought you were going to so, say not doing the dishes. Not doing the dishes. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, these are things that they've identified where we we just like might not even think about it. But contempt, he says contempt is the worst. And couples actually uh, and I I didn't I don't think this was in blank. I found this on John Gottman's website cuz he has this whole fascinating institute basically where he's continuing his research. Um, and trying to get this information out there to help people. But he says couples who are contemptuous of each other are actually more likely to suffer from infectious illness than couples who are not contemptuous. So, I mean, this thing actually can change your health. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, that's mind over matter. You know, it, they say stress is like a huge killer in the world. And, you know, relationship stress is something you have to live with every single day. Yeah, so this is definitely a book that I recommend to anybody. Malcolm Gladwell, he's got some great hair. He's one of my favorite people. <laughs> I'm sure I'll be talking about more of his amazing works of art. Maybe not the Getty Kuros. But, um, you know, this is, it really is a lesson and a meditation on our powers of rapid recognition, what we can notice in the blink of an eye, how that can lead us to make very, very good decisions with just a just a quick snapshot of information and also how it can definitely lead us astray. So check it out. I can't re- recommend it enough. Yeah, that's great, man. I've For years, I've been hearing you talk about Malcolm Gladwell and most of my exposure to, hi- to him has been secondhand either, you know, through, uh, you know, Radio Lab has covered a lot of Malcolm Gladwell. So, I've heard a lot of stories from his works, but I've never sat down and read one of his books myself, which is a little bit of a travesty since I read so much. So I'm definitely going to add some Malcolm Gladwell to my content circuit here in the future. And also, since we're self-isolating, maybe it's a good time to grow our, our hair out and see what happens. Yeah, you have more of a weatherman hairdo. <laughs> I don't think you could pull off a Malcolm Gladwell I don't think so. Yeah, I'm not an Afro kind of guy. I wish. Yeah, maybe one day, Brett. Maybe, maybe when CRISPR day. fires up, you can uh, change your genes a little bit. That sounds good. All right. Well, uh, yeah, that was a great conversation about one of my favorite topics, wingsuit base jumping, and a very fascinating deep dive into Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. I'd say that your content pieces always make me think, Brett, and I really appreciate that. And... I also appreciate everyone listening to the Content Clearinghouse. Thank you so much, and please join us next week.